0: Welcome to New Books in World Affairs. I'm your host, Anna Levy. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Vanessa Ogle about her book, The Global Transformation of Time, 1870-1950, to published by Harvard University Press in 2015. Dr. Ogle is the Julian Martin Franklin Assistant Professor in History at the University of Pennsylvania, where she teaches modern European history. Set mainly in three regions, including the modern Middle East, South Asia, and Europe, the global transformation of time traces the political, social, and economic origins of modern timekeeping. Hi, Vanessa. Thanks so much for joining us today on New Books and World Affairs. It's really nice to, to be able to speak to you today. Hi, Anna. I'm going to jump right in. I, I, really, I really appreciated reading this book for a lot of reasons and read it over the course of the last few months. And, uh, you know, as as we talked a little bit about before, I kind of came back to the notes for the book right as Brexit was happening. And I I had this suddenly very different way of understanding what what was going on in terms of various sort of historical infrastructures that are maybe being undone on top of, you know, some of the other more visible elements of of that whole debate. So where I want to start is, you know, in reading the book, I... I'm not sure what I was expecting, but very quickly I realized that it's a book about the globalization of time and globalization being something pretty specific over the course of a century. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and and what brought you to write a book on, on the globalization of time um, in, in the context of 19th century globalization leading up to the 20th century?
1: Yeah, huh. so... That's an important observation to say that it is actually sort of a book that in a way uses time as a lens um, through which to look at something like uh, globalization. So uh, almost in the first instance, it is, as you say, um, a book more about uh, an interconnected world and the way in which that world Works the way in which certain dynamics of globalization and so on works as exemplified in the example of time, um, if, if you want. So that's important um, to, to say, to start off with, because, of course, there are many books that, if you want, uh, are interested in time much more than they're interested in globalization in the very set, same period written by historians uh, of science who have taken sort of a very different approach to this. So what got me interested uh, in the topic was, I guess you could say sort of my academic uh, trajectory, um, starting as an undergraduate in Germany, uh, in, in my native Germany, where I was born and raised, um, and uh, did my undergraduate studies uh, primarily in, if you want, modern European uh, history and Modern European history, uh, or generally sort of modern, what what in German academia is still often just referred to as, if you want, just modern history, is often in many departments uh, pretty much sort of the history of Germany, of France, to a certain degree of uh, Britain, so if you want, uh, Western Europe. And it is uh, still sort of less common for, for instance, Chinese history, South Asian history, Middle East history, to be actually taught uh, in history departments and to be part of a regular history uh, curriculum. Uh, these, if you want, regional specializations outside of European history are um, often relegated to separate departments, to area studies. Um, so they don't really form part of, uh, uh, of history education. And this is why I, as an undergraduate, was exposed primarily to European history uh, even though nominally I was just doing, if you want, modern history without having a kind of regional focus. And at the same time, this was a period when um, German academia and German academia uh, um, uh, history, uh, so sort of the profession, became more interested in, for instance, the colonial paths of uh, different sort of national European histories um, and I ended up doing my undergraduate thesis on um, French colonial exhibitions. And at the same time, I realized that I was increasingly interested in French and British imperial ventures uh, in uh, the Middle East uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century. And uh, in, in the way in which um, sort of informal imperial interests uh, played out, uh, especially in the Levant and today Lebanon, uh, Syria, um uh, Palestine, Israel, Jordan, and so on. but I also realized that I would want to approach a, a sort of topic like that, um, having more uh, of a kind of area studies background, and especially um, knowing languages of the reason, uh, of the region so uh, in, a, in a pretty kind of unfocused way, while I was approaching the end of my undergraduate studies, I started um, studying Arabic. Um, so that was already sort of there as a kind of less defined, uh, less directed, if you want, um, uh, interest. And then when it came to sort of deciding um, uh, where to go with a with a, a PhD thesis project, initially um, I was going to do that in Germany. Again, I was reading sort of books that increasingly talked about um, the second half of the nineteenth century as an age of empire as an age of internationalism as an age of if you want globalization and as generally a time period in which certain um, facets of globalization that we still see at work today were prefigured or came into existence in 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 certain ways and i was very interested in that and as one aspect of, of 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 this whole um of interconnected history of the second half of the 19th century, it was always mentioned that time was one of the dimensions, one of the aspects of this international life and interconnectedness that – uh became standardized and universalized in this period through the introduction of British time which was said to have happened um sort of surrounding a conference in 1884 and then subsequently um uh, sort of being applied in different uh, places and I found that intriguing and and I realized that while there were um, accounts of this process that looked um at the adoption of mean times from the perspective of history of science, there weren't really books that dealt with this in a sort of much more really global perspective that took into account the imperial colonial dimensions of this process, and that also was sort of more seriously interested in what societies outside of uh, Western Europe um, uh, and the United States thought about time, both the time that they were now supposed uh, to apply, so the new, if you want, standardized um, uh, Greenwich Mean time, but also what they thought about other if you want, varieties of time, uh, what they actually kind of um, came up with uh, themselves um, under the impression of an increasingly interconnected and globalizing world. And so I put this um, project together sort of out of an interest in, in international history and colonialism empire, the second half of the 19th century, um, uh, as an increasingly uh, globalized world. And if you want, a particular interest in the Middle East. Uh, and, and, and I brought these two things um, um, together. And eventually then I sort of moved to the United States um, to continue my Ph.D. there or to actually to, to start the, the, the Ph.D. And, and at that moment, um, I uh, uh, was nominally in a program that... Uh, uh, called itself international global history, so quite different from sort of the German academic, the the way in which disciplines and regional specializations um, were so organized uh, in Germany uh, at this point. And that was a very conscious choice of sort of um, uh, moving um, to a different uh, academic environment where it would be possible to do such a project.
0: And it seems throughout the book, I mean, you cover such an enormous range of forces that influenced time reform, calendar reform, some passive, some active. And and I want to ask you a little bit about the active agents of change uh, over the course of a century and a half, from standardizing mean times to summertime to all of these different notions of of uniform or or disaggregated time. It it, it seems like there are four kind of main forces or phenomena that you organize the book around, and, and that's nationalism, colonialism, capitalism, yeah. and, and religion. So I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about these different forces or, or phenomena, how they worked uh, together in opposition to one another over the course of the period that you talk about.
1: Yeah, so what you just mentioned, nationalism, uh, colonialism, uh, religion, and capitalism – needs to be, uh, if you want, put in contrast with sort of a different set of actors, uh, which is often thought to have been really kind of an impulse for the standardization of time. And that group of actors you could characterize as a sort of internationalist movement of scientists and diplomats who convened at conferences um, who were mainly, of course, um, from Western Europe, with the occasional exception, and um, from the United States. They met at conferences um, where they sat together as scientists, as diplomats, um, as uh, sort of lower-ranking politicians, and talked about a system uh, for um, uh, basically um, easily calculating and comparing mean times uh, that would be rational, neutral, scientific, and that uh, would be based uh, at the um, observatory um, of Greenwich uh, in the United Kingdom and would consist of 24 time zones each an hour wide. And that system would sort of be basically imposed uh, uh, or introduced um, and uh, serve, if you want, as a kind of lubricant um, in this world that was getting ever more interconnected uh, in which things, people, goods and so on moved uh, across borders um, moved between continents, regions and so on. So this is sort of the narrative that these proponents gave of what they were trying to uh, achieve with this um, system but what I tried to show in the book is, as you rightly point out, is how how it was sort of a different set of dynamics that um, then actually um, uh, uh really is what shapes how the process uh, plays out. Nationalism um, and national interests in applying and um, using these new times was uh, very much of of the forefront. So after these conferences convened and after the scientists had basically finished discussing what they were uh, proposing, national governments had to decide um, what to do with such proposals um, and had to basically craft legislation that would introduce uh, new nationwide, countrywide meet times and that would um, replace uh, the local times, sometimes regional uh, times um, that were in use um, up to then taken from the position of the sun uh, in a given location. And so when the French or the Germans uh, and even the British um, contemplated what to do with such calls for a universal system of timekeeping, national interests and often geopolitical considerations stood um, front and center. So the Germans, for instance, um, introduced what was officially the universal, neutral, uh, rational system of Greenwich Mean Time, not as GMT or as Universal Time or something, but rather um, they called it uh, Central European Time, uh, or in German Middle European site, um, which was a concept Central Europe, Middle Europa was a concept um that really kind of came out of geopolitics uh at the end of the nineteenth century, early twentieth uh, century, where it denoted um Germany's very specific kind of middling position on the European continent as falling between uh, Russia in the east, and if you want, sort of Western Europe and France uh, in the west, uh, and comprising um, a lot of space uh, in between, um, uh, sometimes sort of joint with uh, Austria-Hungary um, uh, in that case. And that, of course, had um, profound political implications for um, the, system, the system of alliances, of geopolitical alliances, as it was Forming uh, really from the 1890s uh, in Europe, where Germany allied itself precisely with Austria-Hungary, uh, eventually against uh, Russia, uh, France, um, uh, and Britain, and so on. So this was not a neutral way of thinking uh, about um, what such a new uh, meantime could mean uh, for a country like like Germany. And uh, and some, uh, and similarly. Um, but sort of coming, if you want, from, 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 from different considerations, the French, uh, for a very long time, um, as is well known, rejected um, the adoption of the new system of, of mean times and of, of Greenwich time, because uh, to them it meant, uh, if you want, British time that was named after the main observatory uh, uh, of the British Empire uh and so as a as a kind of expression of, of anti british um and and also if you want so probably imperial uh, uh, competition as long as possible france um stayed out uh stayed outside um of this new system It was only in nineteen eleven which sort of for continental Europe was rather late that nominally the French um joined the system and adopted um a french meantime but even then they refrained from from actually calling it um, Greenwich time, or again, sort of universal time, something like that. They called it Paris time minus, uh, 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 and then they basically applied um, the time difference uh, 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 between Paris and London. So they said Paris time minus um, uh, uh, nine minutes, and so on, so on, so on. Uh, So again, there you have a very... um, specific kind of nationally inspired way of thinking um, about the meaning uh, and, and, the, uh, and so, you know, the meaning of this new time and, 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 and this new resource. And we see this play out um, uh, in, in, the, in the colonial world as well, where uh, once administrators um, beginning in the 20th century set out to adopt um, mean times for different colonies in sub-Saharan Africa, Uh, in in Asia and so on, uh, where they very much thought in sort of regional uh, terms and where uh, they adopted mean times that were completely, um, if you want, out of sync with the supposedly universal uh, system. So often colonies would get mean times that differed from Greenwich not by even hours as it had been stipulated, but for instance, by half hours, by quarter hours, by um, 20 minute uh, differences and so on. Uh, Or a colony would adopt a mean time that was sort of nominally outside of the time zone in which it actually fell. But for various reasons, um, The administrators of said colony um, found this particular time to be more uh, uh, convenient because it was the time that was applied in the neighboring colony. And because said colony had a lot of um, commercial, otherwise political contact uh, and exchange with that other territory, it seemed much more convenient to simply adopt a time that would make sense in this regard than to... Uh, adhere to the stipulations that had been put forward at these international conferences, and that was supposedly neutral, rational, uh, and so on. Uh, so, nationalism was very important in shaping the decisions of uh, governments, both in Europe uh, but also beyond that in, in, in the colonial world. Um, and uh, so the Uh, one of the other dimensions um, and dynamics um, that you mentioned um, which uh, shaped uh, this process um, uh, uh, which I can perhaps sort of speak to in a little more detail is capitalism um, or rather uh, sort of the way in which perhaps um, capitalism uh, did not so much um, shape uh, this process. Um, So there is a um, long-standing assumption in uh, in the historiography on the standardization of time, but also um, generally sort of um, uh, the way in which people thought about time, internalized notions of time that we associate with uh, E.P. Thompson uh, and with a famous article that he wrote about um, time discipline, what he calls time discipline, and industrial capitalism. And there he states basically that uh, in the late 18th and early 19th century, so quite a bit before um, the time that I'm looking at, the late 18th, early 19th century, uh, it was through the experience of factory work and the discipline uh, and regularity that came with factory work, with increasing factory work, that a growing number of people sort of internalized the discipline and um, sort of regularity of certain time regimes that we associate with um, a certain kind of capitalist um, modernity. But uh, what I found, so you, based on that, you could kind of expect that um, you know there were, for instance, factory owners, there were business interests, um, people like that, interests like that, lining up behind um, these proposals to introduce me times uh, because that you know might have been in their interest as well uh, as well. But what I, and that's what I basically started uh, out looking for. Um, but I did not find uh, this uh, and it surprised me. Um, and what I instead found was um, sort of a world in which really kind of the application of these uh, new times, remained rather patchy and sketchy um, for much longer than we thought. Um, And so the assumption that um, the regularity of uh, factory work combined with the ownership of clocks and watches and combined with the adoption of mean times and the introduction of standard times would have sort of further enhanced time sense, time discipline, time orientation, as Thompson calls it, uh that seemed um suddenly sort of less um yeah sure than um uh I had uh expected and then you could sort of think based on um what historians in and sort of Thompson's vein had written about this. So basically when I looked at uh Yeah, debates about um, especially the introduction of summertime, so daylight saving time, which kind of followed uh, debates about mean times um, in Europe uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century. When I looked at these daylight saving debates, I found that people actually had tremendous difficulties in understanding, um, if you want, what what we would refer to as kind of abstract uh, clock time. They still very much thought of time as um, determined by natural rhythms, um, very much determined um, by uh, daylight and darkness, by the setting of the sun, uh, the rising of the sun, uh, the seasons, and so on. And it was no sort of contradiction for them to basically inhabit both the time of these natural rhythms, but also to own a watch, uh, possibly, or to, um, you know, adjust their watch uh by looking at um, the village uh, uh, uh clock uh, on 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 like pinned to the the church uh clock tower or something like that um, this was not a contradiction but still uh, they struggled to understand uh, this new time and uh it seemed to me that based on um, uh, these findings and based on these difficulties that sort of the notion that um time discipline and a time sense and time orientation had become very widespread with factory work alone, uh, was difficult to uphold, um, uh, based on what I, uh, was reading. And this also seemed to explain why sort of capitalism in the sense that, um, Thompson, uh, and others, um, had pinpointed it may not have been as in- instrumental, um, for this process, uh, than, um, previously thought uh, and it seemed to explain why um, you know typical kind of capitalist interests relatively were relatively absent um, from uh, you know these movements um, to uh, to standardize time and to introduce um, mean times so I've been talking about this for for, for quite a while do, we, do you want me to um, also uh, Uh, talk about religion um, uh, and and colonialism uh, uh, and empire,
0: or? If you can talk, yeah, a little bit about religion and colonialism. You know, part of the the capitalism, colonialism, I guess, matrix, if you want to call it that, was it. it's fascinating in, in different parts of the book, just talking about, for example, railway and communications infrastructure as depending, like their integration, depending heavily on these standards of time that are then also irrelevant or or actively opposed by people in different places. And so I wonder if you can pull out some of those dynamics. I I was asking about religion also, um, in part because I think what you try to do or what you do very well in the book is, you know, there's a lot of resistance to, to these different sort of time regimes that are being proposed, or there's a lot of debate, maybe even more than resistance, but then there are Parallel conversations that that aren't necessarily about about Europe um, and and Europe's propositions of time, but for example, the te- <clears throat> excuse me. There's one example where you you talk about the Telegraph in Beirut, kind of transforming how legal precedents over timekeeping in Islam are are determined. Um, so maybe you can talk a little bit about about those two, whether whether or not they're connected. That's that's fine.
1: Yeah, sure. So these. New infrastructure uh, projects such as railways, such as telegraphy, um, steamships, and so on, obviously from a certain point on sort of benefited from the uh, application of more accurate and, and sort of more easily calculable uh, mean times. Um, so that's undeniable. And, and there were certainly, especially in the United States, and this is sort of a little bit of a kind of a particularly American um, story, especially in the United States, there were railway interests heavily invested in the process of of, of applying um, standard time and introducing um, uh, uniform uh, mean times. Um, this was also the case uh, in Europe and in in, in the colonial world, um, but much less forcefully so. Uh, and the reason was that sort of European railways. Um, like in perhaps some uh, contrast to, to the American story, um, were often, if you want, kind of um, government-sponsored or even from a certain point on nationalized uh, government uh, projects, which served um, certainly, you know, to a secondary degree, capitalist interest, but which in the first instance actually very much had a kind of nation-building state building, um, integrational purpose, um, and did, especially in Germany, a lot to kind of unify, um, territory, uh, in France, um, it's, it's sort of a very uh, similar, uh, story. Um, so the role and the function of railways, and you can add telegraphy to that, um, uh, certainly has a connection um, to you know sort of the growing integration of the world economy and world markets and so on, but especially with regard to Europe, it, al- it also has this kind of state building, nation building aspect um, uh, to it, uh, very much. Um, so uh, sometimes um, there has we have to sort of just distinguish between the the American story and 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 the ways in which European governments also simply because they could and, and because perhaps in certain instances they were more centralized, could use railways uh, in certain ways that other places um, uh, couldn't. Uh, But still there there is obviously um, uh, a a connection between um, uh, these interests and between the ways in which um, sort of uh, economic life uh, benefited um, from the improvement and the introduction of of these new um, technologies. Um, at the same time, these technologies, of course, were uh, instrumental to imperial and, and colonial endeavors. Um, the building of railways and telegraphy lines, this is sort of well established um, in literature on history of science and technology uh, and in literature on, on colonialism and imperialism. These kind of infrastructure projects did a lot to consolidate empire, to make empire um and the extension of empire possible over uh, growing distances and to facilitate and to improve uh, sort of communication between uh, centers and, and, and peripheries. But at the same time, uh, what I think my book also tries to show is that this world of, you know, infrastructure um, and communication Uh, was rather fragile and um, was prone to, if you want, kind of malfunction and really just, you know, the infrastructure put in place not working. Um, Over and over again, you read in the conversation um, uh, that, you know, comes from different colonies and arrives in Berlin or London, you read about the, 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 the ways in which telegraphy lines break down and, um, you know, railway schedules aren't working as well as they've been just kind of um, drawn up. Uh, so I think sort of generally there's a tendency to um, to rightly uh, see these infrastructure projects as very powerful and very important to colonial rule, but there was also ways in which um, they didn't work as well um, as they were intended to. Uh, and it took a long time to perfect them and to really sort of get these systems, uh, to work, um, more efficiently. And that was very much the same, um, with regard to, to time and the application to, um, the application of, of new, uh, mean times. Um, the, the, the process of applying and actually, you know, sort of forcefully using new times, um, took much longer and really, uh, came to bear on on societies around the world much later um, than you could expect. But, and this gets me to, um, if you want, resistance uh, or parallel conversations about time that were um, taking place, which you referred to, uh, but this didn't mean that uh, societies around the world wouldn't have um, taken sort of a keen interest in time um, in these very same decades. and it shows you something about the kind of symbolic, uh, cultural, and social meanings and qualities of time that go far beyond um, both the sort of instrumentalist, capitalist need um, uh, for integration and also the sort of nationalist um, uh, drive to integrate uh, territories. Time always had these very symbolic um, and profoundly social, uh, qualities, uh, and, 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 meanings associated to it. Uh, and this is why, for instance, um, in British India, even though, you know, um, practically the application of new mean times and the introduction of new times may have remained rather sort of patchy. Uh, Indian nationalists very strongly objected to, um, basically abiding by, uh, the time of the colonizer. So when the British administration um, at two points, first in the 1880s and then again uh, in the early 20th century, around 1905, 1906, tried to basically extend the system uh, of mean times and to introduce a standard time, a uniform time for all of India. Uh, this um, sparked protests uh, and sort of became tied up with an early Um, nationalist movement that was uh, um, coming into existence, especially in the city of Bombay. uh, So that basically protest against the new British time was uh, at the uh, the same time um, a more or less open criticism of British colonial rule uh, over the entire subcontinent, Uh, of the arbitrary nature of that rule and the ways in in which it interfered with people's daily lives, um, with people's uh, work rhythms, with people's uh, sometimes religious uh, obligations. These were the kind of objections that um, these early nationalists um, voiced against uh, 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 British time as it was supposed to replace local Bombay time. And especially as one... And, and, and in fact, as one curiosity of this whole story uh, uh, of standardization and, and, and the transformation of time, Bombay actually retained its own local time um, uh, until 1950. So even after uh, Indian independence, um, uh, uh, there was sort of a brief moment when uh, Bombay um, is then the only city in uh, India um would have its own local time, where while well, everybody else uh, now adhered to the standard um, that is still Greenwich plus uh, five and a half uh, hours. So this was one example of how loaded and how sort of symbolically, uh, socially charged time was, despite the perhaps rather um, feeble, if you want, application of some of these uh, mean time projects, and. Other examples um, uh, can be found, um, for instance, uh, in, as you mentioned, a place like Beirut, where uh, we're looking at a society that in the late 19th, early 20th century um, uh, is um, still under uh, Ottoman rule. So it's part of the uh, Ottoman Empire. It's part of the Arab provinces uh, of the Ottoman Empire in that region. But the Ottoman Empire and the Arab provinces at this point are sort of um, facing a growing challenge from European imperial interests informally. So you have missionaries, you have uh, consuls, you have uh, obviously merchants, economic interests that sort of increasingly penetrate and um, um, yeah, uh, set up a, a, a palpable presence um, in these regions and um, start to kind of crowd out, uh, for instance, um, local uh, commerce, local economic interests. And this is perceived as a challenge and as a threat amongst um, elites, uh, some elites uh, in these regions who, who observe this. And of course, at the same time, we're talking about the 1880s, 1890s, for instance, now, at the same time, these elites see that you know large parts uh, of the um, formerly uncolonized worlds for instance in sub-Saharan Africa is falling under the sway of European uh, imperialism very rapidly so so what they come up with uh, in response to this challenge and in response to the possible threat of you know, uh, becoming colonized is a kind of reform movement um, which is uh, referred to as the Nahda uh, in Arabic and takes on a broad variety uh, of forms. Uh, it consists of calls, um, perhaps most importantly, to improve uh, education throughout the region, uh, to uh, to basically sort of um, create a society um, of educated, uh, strong, uh, in this case, um, um, sort of uh, Ottomans, Arabs that would be able to withstand uh, uh, the challenge of European empire and European um, uh, colonialism. Uh, And tied to that is um, what what these reformers recommend as a kind of very targeted adoption of certain aspects um, that have made Europeans in particular successful. So certain aspects of European science, of European ways of life should be in a very strategic and kind of targeted way adopted by uh, Arabs, Ottomans um, in order to kind of um, self-improve, self-modernize, you could say. And so what I found when I read um of the you know the some of the well-known outlets in which these reformers uh published um at the time was that uh as one aspect they very much um focused on time management or what we could would call what you could call a time management uh, today. So they exhorted their fellow um citizens in Beirut um in the Levant to not waste time um, mindlessly, uh, and they kind of very much um, uh, pick up on the much older uh, the notion that time is money. This um, is translated into Arabic and, and recurs uh, over and over again in in, in some of these uh, reformist tracts and, and texts. Um, so they basically uh, uh, sort of argue that uh, if individuals would only manage their time more wisely, for, for instance, by, you know, dividing up their day into different um, uh, chunks of time and then dedicating these chunks of time to specific um, useful activities, studying, learning, working, and so on, uh, that would overall basically yield a society or, as they say, a nation um, that ultimately would be strong enough, uh, progressive enough um, to withstand this challenge of sort of European aspirations, um, European empire, uh, in the region. So this is a uh, a call to adopt certain European ways of lives, uh, life and, and practices, but such calls, and that was among the kind of more interesting um, uh, things that I found, were always mixed um, with ways to try and reconcile uh, these European notions and sort of what was perceived as the typical European management of time. To, to mix that and reconcile that with um, what you could call some sort of more local indigenous uh, notions um, and, and concepts of time. So to give you one example, uh, what some of these reformers do is they, um, they merge sort of this idea of time management with um, a much older concept of time as fate, which actually um, goes back as far as um, even sort of pre-Islamic uh, 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 poetry and is later uh, with the um, arrival of Islam in the region um, incorporated into Islam and it basically consists of the idea that um, uh, time sort of in this sense of fate means um, a lifespan uh, in which uh, certain things happen to you, occur to you. Uh, and sort of in the eyes of these reformist thinkers uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century, you can very actively manage uh, not just you know time in the in the kind of European sense, but your fate. Uh, so dahar the, um, the the term that is used in Arabic to describe this, dah um, uh, can be can be steered, can be actively managed, uh, uh, and sort of to, to manage your time or fate wisely at the same time means to manage your life uh, wisely and we can imagine that um through the use of such key terms such as the um which does not have a sort of 100 percent equivalent in, in the european discourse about these things through the use of such key terms um such debates would resonate with uh, local people in, in in kind of different ways than they would have otherwise if if um uh such calls for improvement had consisted of a sort of one to one emulation um, of of purely sort of european uh concepts and then the other uh, instance that you mentioned um was for me one of the most uh fascinating finds really uh, uh that made it into the book um and that as you said uh, concerns um uh, telegraphy and religious time, and uh, the question of whether it is in accordance with Islamic law to use the telegraph um, to uh, basically determine the end and beginning of the Islamic month and uh, the end and beginning of uh, Ramadan uh, in particular. Ramadan because, of course, as the uh, fasting month, it has sort of a special standing in the Islamic um, lunar uh, calendar uh, overall. And it was one of these uh, instances where I happened upon a book by, uh, or this text, which became really um, the foundation for this chapter, uh, uh, by pure coincidence, um, I was merely looking for... um, basically a work that I had seen referenced somewhere um, that would give me an idea of sort of the extent of telegraphy networks in the region uh, in the late 19th, early 20th century. And I knew there was this book, but I couldn't find it anymore. And I was at that point um, based uh, at the American University of Beirut in, um, uh, and was using their library. And they have a very good uh, library catalog um in which you can search not just with Latin characters, but um, uh, Arabic uh, uh, characters, and in Arabic as well as um, uh, other languages. Uh, but I had also noticed that some of the entries that I found when I searched in Arabic, I would not find in, in using Latin characters. So some sometimes there were translation or transliteration problems. Uh, so it was always kind of uh, uh, safer to do searches in both. So I couldn't find the telegraphy book um, by just like, you know, um, using uh, French or English um, uh, and, the, and the Latin characters. So I typed in the Arabic word for wire, which is just uh, basically bark um, and uh, ended up finding a, uh, a not the book I was actually looking for, but um, a book that uh, had been written in 1911 by a um, uh religious reformer based out of Damascus, uh, Jamal ad-Din al um, someone who I then found out was sort of relatively well-known to scholars, especially of religious reform movements uh, in Damascus um, of this period. And he had written a book um, uh, about, uh, sort of loosely translating the title, Guiding Mankind in um, Using uh, the Telegraphy, um, for determining the religious month, um, and I, I I read this title and I obviously I, I I could not make sense of it immediately, and so when I began to to read the book, I noticed uh, so I found that this was um, a discussion about um, combining sort of the stipulations of Islamic law and the Sharia with the use of new technologies um, such as the telegraph. <clears throat> especially uh, uh, in religious rituals. And in this case, the ritual of determining the end um, <clears throat> at the beginning um, of the holy month uh, of, of Ramadan. So it is a, a, a perfect example for how reformist thinkers of the period, um, again, try to reconcile sort of traditional lo- notions, um, uh, and in this case, Islamic law, with innovations um and with, in this case, um, uh, technological innovations such, such as the telegraph. And and uh, to, to what was particularly uh, um, beneficial about this uh, one book was that um, at the end of this sometimes very kind of you know specific legal uh, uh, elaboration that he gave over almost a hundred pages, at the end of this book he had appended. 12 uh, fatwas, um, so uh, legal rulings, that had been issued by contemporaries of his, roughly speaking, uh, in and around the Mediterranean world, from Algeria to uh, Syria, um, uh, um, uh, Beirut, and so on, who had also spoken to this matter. Uh, And so... Um, when I saw these 12 uh, fatwas and tracked down as far as I could their authors, I realized that this was actually a debate that ranged much further than just this one individual and that had involved some of the most prominent um, religious reformist figures uh, of the time period. Uh, Just one example of a name that is well known to um, scholars of Middle East history, Uh, Rashid Reda was perhaps the kind of foremost um, religious reformer uh, and editor of a very important um, journal uh, out of Cairo in the period. He um, was one of the authors uh, who I found um, in uh, uh, that appendix. Uh, and it turned out, uh, as I then found when I kind of browsed through his journal, that he um, had actually uh, uh, opined on uh, on this question um, several times Uh uh, even beyond what was uh, in the book. So I ended up uh, writing a chapter uh, on this controversy uh, as it had erupted around 1910-11, um, sort of uh, around the shores of the Mediterranean. Uh, and I found that this was a conversation, as you said, that had little to do with um if you want European prompts or keywords or, you know, even attempts to introduce uh, and standardize at times, this was a discussion that was similarly motivated by an impression of an increasingly connected world, by an impression of, um, you know, what new means of communication and transportation did and could do and, and, and meant But it was not a discussion that relied heavily um, or was inspired even by uh, conversations um, uh, that were happening in Europe. It was a perfect example for, if you want, different societies responding to similar, much broader, overarching economic and social developments, but doing so very much in their own idiom, uh, on their own terms, um, out of their own concerns. And in this case, the concern was uh, Islamic law and um, uh, religious timing. And to just briefly uh, um, um, explain why this was controversial at all, uh, the Islamic calendar, of course, being a lunar calendar, um, basically uh, uh, determines um, the beginning of Any new month by citing um, the new moon. This is what Muhammad has ordered uh, his followers to do uh, in the Quran. So uh, when the new moon is cited, you need uh, a number of witnesses who testify to uh, having seen the new moon and then uh, at least that was sort of beginning to be the practice in the late 19th, early 20th century. A court, a Sharia court somewhere, will rule um, whether the sighting and the testimony given um, about citing the new moon are valid. And that means, um, uh, if that is the case, that means the new month um, has uh, uh, begun. And the beginning and the end of Ramadan... Um, are especially important because, of course, Ramadan is a special uh, month, uh, being the fasting month, being the holy month, um, and also uh, containing um, at the end an important holiday, the Eid, um, that is um, uh, uh, still, of course, celebrated uh, today when uh, Ramadan ends in Muslim societies uh, all over the world. So these were special days, and special importance was attributed to Ramadan versus um, other uh, months. So the question that um, these legal experts, and they were, you know, mostly sort of religious reformers trained um, in uh, Islamic law to a certain degree, the question that they raised was, uh, were twofold basically. The first was about um, the reliability of new technologies and whether something like the telegraph was trustworthy and reliable enough um, to transmit. A message that would rely, relay that someone in a remote province had sighted the new moon, uh, and that uh, 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 basically, sort of, a, maybe a local Sharia court um, had uh, validated that sighting, and so news of this event was now um, transmitted to the center, somewhere that administrative center um, in Cairo or, or wherever uh, it was, and. Officially, um, sort of, uh, then Ramadan would have uh, been declared to to have begun. But the question was, can you do that just based on a telegraph? Um, can you uh, is a telegra- telegram uh, is the telegraph um, uh, trustworthy enough, um, reliable enough to convey a message message uh, of such uh, importance? So you have a long kind of legal discussion um, about uh, uh, the reliability of of the telegraph, uh, and of course. Um, Uh, There's a simultaneous attempt to paint the telegraph not as a, if you want, European or Western uh, invention, but rather actually, in this case, as an Ottoman uh, uh, feature, as an instrument of the Ottoman state um, uh, that was governed by Ottoman laws, um, laws that, for instance, laid down... um, uh, specifications as to how someone wanting to send a telegram had to identify themselves, um, had to provide proof of identification of some sort before they were allowed to send a telegram, and so on. Uh, So uh, so a whole kind of framework of rules and laws governing uh, telegraphy, which was um, uh, drawn up by the Ottoman state, and and which had nothing to do, if you want, um, with uh, uh, the Western origins um, of this new technology. So this was one aspect of the debate. And then perhaps even the more interesting uh, aspect of of the telegraphy debate uh, pertained to um, what you could call sort of questions of um, distance and belonging and how large, how far away uh, Muslims could be to still be part of um, a supposedly universal Muslim ummah. Uh, all Muslims basically living, you know, anywhere in the world. And these were questions that even though they were not prompted or inspired by um simultaneous uh, European discussions, they were very similar to uh, discussions that Europeans were having about standard time um, in these very same decades. What the legal experts, uh, the problem that legal experts were, were rising basically was... How far apart can Muslims live to still observe one and the same moon sighting? Of course, as it was well known to Muslim astronomers, uh, sighting the new moon um, was to to a certain degree determined by latitude and longitude. So theoretically, um, places further apart could be said to have observed you know different start and and, and end dates um, uh, of a month simply because um, the observation citing the new moon um, would have slightly or sometimes sometimes even more notably um, uh, would have differed uh, so what they basically posed as a problem was um how far, as I said, can Muslims live apart and to still be a part of the sort of universal uh, Muslim community? Uh, and um, it was really only through telegraphy and through the possibility of transmitting news about moon sighting over a growing um, distance that such questions even posed themselves. Um, previously, when um, uh, telegraphy had not even been available to transmit messages. About moon sighting, overgrowing distances, it would have simply stayed a local affair, and there wouldn't have been the issue, if you want, of um, uh, uh, you know, of distance. But this was um, one example of uh, how um, you know Muslim legal experts basically raised the question: How universal can time be? Uh, 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 can, in this case, religious time and calendar time be? Uh, uh, given that we know that the science behind this is actually sort of very local. So very, very, as I said, similar to debates about um, universal time, in this case clock time, standard time, and the um, suppression of local times as it was being discussed um, by uh, European scientists and diplomats in in the same decades, but not uh, connected, as you said, uh, to these debates.
0: There, a lot of a lot of interesting things come up, and one thing that I was quite drawn to, uh, which you kind of you spatter throughout the book and, and land on a bit before the conclusion, um, is this notion of of time or temporal pluralism and calendar pluralism, and that amidst all of these ba- debates, you do see places where. P- there is a pluralism that that emerges or that already exists and 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 is sustained, so I'm wondering if you know as we as we start to come to the conclusion, if you can talk about places where temporal or time pluralism and calendar pluralism thrives and and also just give give a little bit of background on what these things even are
1: yeah absolutely. so as I came to find um sort of the coexistence of different ways of uh, understanding both clock time, but also calculating calendars. The coexistence of different time regimes was very much the norm pretty much around the world and even in Europe uh, for much longer um, than you could assume. And people were actually much more comfortable with living with different time regimes, um, with temporal pluralism then you could uh, expect um, judging from uh, the way things mostly are, uh, at least in in the Western world today. Uh, So what I found was that um, in certain places, uh, simply because of the coexistence of different, for instance, religious groups, um, there was sort of an amplified uh, temporal pluralism. And Beirut, um, or a place like Beirut, uh, was perhaps... um, one of the most pronounced examples of this, but you can imagine other, um, similar sort of types of places, um, in which you would, you would have found, um, the same kind of constellations think port cities in general, where you have, um, uh, you know, a lot of inflow of people from different backgrounds with different, um, sort of religious uh, backgrounds. Um, think generally kind of colonial cities where, um, again you have a a mix of uh people uh european colonial administrators um traders uh, uh local elites and so on these types of cities which were you know sort of fairly widespread uh uh i would say probably until you know the, the middle of the 20th century in, in in this sense um these types of cities Uh, were a a kind of laboratory almost um, for a a type of temporal pluralism that um, uh, later got lost. Um, Would be an interesting question um, to discuss whether actually we are sort of returning again to a more plural uh, time regime now. But at least for a while during sort of the mid-20th century, um, we can assume that um, there was less of this pluralism. So in a place like Beirut, um, what did this look like? Uh, in a place like Beirut, you had um, uh, obviously Muslims uh, uh, who followed um, their Islamic lunar calendar, which um, not just uses a different uh, era, uh, starts uh, uh, at a different point in time, uh, but also um, is a lunar calendar, so uh, uh, is different from, from, from sort of the Gregorian calendar in that regard. Uh, and newspapers, for instance, um, would on their header uh, indicate um, the Islamic date, uh, and then mostly the Gregorian date, uh, sort of the Gregorian calendar date as well, and then because uh, the Levant was and is a region in which um, there are also many Orthodox Christians, there was the sort of unreformed um, Eastern uh, 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 calendar uh, date as well. So often uh, you had actually three dates um, on the header of the newspaper. Uh, And the situation could get even more complicated when you added um, what is uh, referred to normally as the Ottoman fiscal calendar, which is a purely administrative year, that um, began in March and sort of had to do uh, initially with tax collection and agriculture, but had sort of um, remained in use for official administrative purposes. So, when the Ottomans, um, the Ottoman administration, made an announcement, it would often use um, uh, uh, that calendar to indicate um, uh, a date. Uh, so, th- so there was pluralism um, in the way of, of dates and calendars, um, uh, and in addition to that. Uh, you had, of course, um, sort of, uh, if you want, um, a pluralism of uh, clock times. Um, for Muslims, the five-fold um, daily prayer uh, that uh, observant Muslims are supposed um, to follow is very much determined kind of the division of the day and the announcement of prayer times um, by the uh the, the from, um, you know, the, the, the minaret um, made this uh, sort of very audible. Uh, and this was not um, limited, uh, obviously, to just uh, Muslim constituents, but uh, the call for prayer uh, was heard by others uh, as well. And then, because this was a region in which Christians lived, um, there were a growing number uh, of missionaries active in the region from different backgrounds who built churches. And the churches had uh, uh, clock towers and bells. So, that the announcement um, uh, of, of hours and this, the sounding of um, church bells uh, sort of added another layer uh, of time. And then, to further complicate matters, uh, uh, there were differences in, in, in counting um, time. Um, there was what uh, newspapers um, and, and people would refer to as um, Arab and uh, what they called Frankish. Um, which basically meant European time. So Arab time um, uh, basically counted the hours of the day beginning from sunset uh, and divided the um, day into two halves of... uh, divided, sorry, 24 hours into two halves of daylight um, and nighttime. Uh, And because the duration... Of these two blocks obviously differed with the seasons, the days being longer or shorter um, in summer and winter uh, respectively. These were unequal hours Um, and while sort of the unequal nature of of these hours had been smoothed out um, at least to a certain degree uh, at this point in the late 19th, uh, early 20th century through various um, uh, uh, ways of, of calculating and techniques, there was still the matter that the day actually began at sunset. So when you, uh, when you found an indication um, in a newspaper stating Arab time, you had to have in mind that the day began um, at sunset. On the other hand, of course, um, uh, through the increased presence of Europeans uh, in the region, uh, the use of European time was becoming more widespread, um, and for that purpose, uh, uh, newspapers, when they printed, um, you know, from steamboat schedules to anything really, they would uh, specify whether they were talking about Arabic time uh, or um, a European time. In, in this case, um, so here you have a situation where uh, just simply. Um, the, the ways of denoting and calculating time, both clock times and calendars, are uh, uh, pretty um, you know, uh, variegated. Uh, and that was probably an extreme, but as I said, you can imagine similar types of places that existed um, uh, really up to the middle of the 20th century um, where the situation would have been uh, uh, comparable. And in addition to that, and this is something um, I, I want to kind of highlight in the book, um, uh, is in addition to that, um, you have a a way in which people, even in Europe, not just in these special places like Beirut, even in Europe, live with sort of multiple uh, time uh, regimes or live with multiple notions of time. And I touched a little bit uh, upon that when I talked about um, the difficulties of imagining something like daylight saving. So the idea that you just move, um, you know, uh, basically time back and forward uh, twice a year when you switch to daylight saving time and then and, uh, off of it again um, in, in the fall and so on. Um, uh when I talked about the the difficulties of imagining something like that. Um, What I found in discussions about um, generally sort of the adoption of mean times um, and daylight saving time in particular was that, as I said, people were very comfortable inhabiting um, sort of different, simply uh, conceptualizations of time. So time as something that is regular, uh, 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 uniform, determined by uh, the clock, but also time as something that still is, Quite irregular, determined by the seasons, um, by the sort of work that you know, um, by this especially sort of kind of agricultural uh, work that certain seasons uh, bring with them. Even in an age when industrialization has um, uh, uh, advanced pretty far, especially in a place like 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 uh, Britain, so people were comfortable inhabiting these different um, time regimes. What what you find is that um, they were much more consciously doing so, uh, and they were much more apt at moving between different calculations, for instance, of calendars, uh, uh, of converting uh, uh, the um, lunar calendar uh, a lunar calendar date to a Gregorian date. They were much more comfortable sort of moving between these different systems in these particular places, such as Beirut, where <clears throat> temporal pluralism. Um, and the coexistence of different times is really so pronounced uh, and, and so enhanced then in Europe that's what i'm saying basically
0: and with it with a book like this i mean thank you so much again it's it's a very fascinating read and i'm sure. glad that we got through um i mean there are there there are almost two or three kind of different stories of time that take shape throughout the book so for anyone who reads it, I encourage you to read all the way until the end because there is sort of a pivot <laughs> around the third or fourth chapter that takes place. And, and you know, all comes back together at the end with, with this question of was was all this integration really integration or was it fracture? Was it homogeneity or was it, you know, did it produce more unevenness than homogeneity is, are, are some of the questions you sort of pose at the end. What are you working on now, if I may ask? And, you know, how, how do you continue and build on this? Or which direction are you moving these days?
1: Yeah. Um, so one, you know, rather, if you want, more conceptual problem, underlying problem in all these uh, issues that, that we touch upon in, in the story of time unification and, and globalization is the relationship between, if you want, um, states nations and as, as you say something like you know um, uh, uh, nationalism on the one hand or for fragmentation and on the other hand integration uh, and flows that cross the borders of nation states and, and 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 regions and so on flows of people goods ideas and so on so the tension um, between homogenization and fragmentation some like to call it the tension if we speak we're speaking sort of in more concrete terms uh looking at the second half of the 19th century the tension between state building and really sort of the rise of nationalism and stronger states in this period and the increase of flows connections um what some people like to call globalization interconnectedness and so on uh it is striking that these two things basically occur at the same time. Uh, And as I try to show a little bit sort of um, in the book, uh, I think this is not uh, by coincidence that uh, this happens at the same time. These processes are sort of mutually reinforcing, uh, influencing one another. Um, And it's not just sort of an odd paradox that is out there, if you want the simultaneity of nationalism and uh, the integration of the world economy and so on. Uh, uh, there's more to that, but it's also a very different, difficult uh, question, which to which there's sort of no, um, you know, answer that uh, can be given kind of across time. So uh, this changes when we look into the 20th century. The relationship between if you want territory and flows, order, uh, flows, um, uh, movements, and so on. Uh, and basically, um, what I'm doing in my new project is. Um, I'm looking at the same overarching problem, which continues to fascinate me, um, but in a completely different context, um, in a completely different setting, and also in a uh, quite different time period. So my new work, um, which is uh, tentatively called, um, which I call at the moment, uh, Archipelago Capitalism, um, is a book project that deals with uh, the emergence of tax havens, of offshore money markets, um and special economic zones, free trade zones, um, uh, uh, sometimes called export processing zones, roughly from the 1920s um, to the 1980s. And um, uh, the idea is that this period from the 20s to the 1980s is normally a time um, in which the state, and the nation state in particular, uh, are, are thought to have been really important, and that's undeniable. Um, uh, it is the time period when sort of empires gradually uh, decline and uh, ultimately come to an end, are, are increasingly replaced by nation states. It's also a time when something like the New Deal um, uh, and World War II and certain reforms kind of following World War II um, create uh, a welfare state in Europe and the United States uh, to a certain degree, uh, which, you know, um, puts government and again sort of the state in a very important uh, uh, position. It's also, of course, the period in which um, development ultimately in the third world, in the developing world um, and modernization project projects also try to kind of make national societies, um, uh, create nation states out of uh, the ruins of empire. And while this is all happening, Uh, and this is what what struck me when I kind of became aware of this, you have a simultaneous emergence of a very different kind of legal um, and and in this case um, economic and and, and political order which consists of these sort of smaller territories that are often um, at the periphery uh, of bigger, more powerful uh, nation states um, which take on certain functions um, and in which certain laws um, that govern nation-states, bigger territories otherwise are either suspended or simply um, sort of don't apply. So we see in the interwar period the emergence of tax havens such as Liechtenstein, uh, Luxembourg, um, the Channel Islands, um, and certain parts uh, of Switzerland um, kind of for the European uh, continent. And then with uh, the um, end of the British Empire after 1945, so if the um, proliferation of that very same uh, order continues um, uh, in places such as the Caribbean, with the Bahamas, um, the Cayman Islands, um, uh, Bermuda, British Virgin Islands, and so on. So all the well-known uh, tax havens that are still in existence today. And I'm basically interested in the relationship of, um, you know, these very big questions such as capitalism, the state. Uh, uh, what does it mean that? just at the moment when states become more important, strong, really kind of dominant as an organizing principle, you have this other legal, economic, uh, political um, system that sort of emerges on the margins, and how do, how do these things uh, go together? Um, and it's probably a very uh, rather sort of abstract way of combining uh, the two uh, projects, but uh, I do think of um, them as actually very related on this conceptual level.
0: Yeah, and again, I mean the timing of of, of that kind of project, which I'm guessing you, you began before um the big the big sort of reporting project on on tax havens and, and the global elite. It's it's very timely, it's super interesting the work that you're doing and, and I look forward to reading that book. Sure. <laughs> um so thank you again, Vanessa, for for talking with me today and again to all the listeners. It's a good read. Well worth, well worth getting through to the end. So, thank you.
1: Well, thank you so much for taking the time. It was a pleasure, really.